want to invite everyone to open their Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5. Today brings us to uh, chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. Okay, uh, is anybody here familiar with Ryan Leaf? Maybe a little bit, yeah. Uh, he was a quarterback for Washington State, led them to a conference championship. Uh, he was a finalist for the Heisman Trophy, got beat out by Peyton Manning. Uh, and he was one of the top three draft picks in 1998. But Ryan Leaf retired in 2002. It's four years after he was drafted. Uh, he would go on to get in trouble with drug abuse and burglaries and sentences in prison. But, but those things aren't why he left the NFL. His career ended because of pride. If you know Ryan Leaf, then you probably know that he was notoriously difficult to work with. He related poorly to his teammates, uh, and he tended to blame them for his poor play. And, and, and he even developed like this reputation for this really bad work ethic where other quarterbacks uh, on the team would be like studying film you know, of other teams and stuff, and he'd just be out playing golf. And then a, a general man- manager at the time said, guys can be jerks but I've never seen the guy work harder at alienating his teammates. Ryan Leaf had medical problems, sure, that that led to him leaving. But one of the greatest contributors to his fall was his own great pride, and it caused everybody else around him to suffer. In fact, this story about Ryan Leaf shows us that often the greatest danger isn't what happens to us from the outside, but what happens on the inside. The greatest dangers often aren't the external threats, but the internal threats that that threaten to tear us apart from the inside out. I'm, I'm a fan of the Marvel movies, right? And one of those movies is called Captain America Civil War. And, and that movie shows the great danger of, of what it looks like to, to fight in between yourselves and to, and to tear apart from the inside. Ferdinand Magellan's trip was one out of 12 ships, one beaten ship away from being a footnote in history because the armada split up over issues of pride. The Spaniards looking down on Magellan because he was a, uh, a Portuguese. And the church is no different. The church can be no different. I, I, I want to show you something real quick, right? If you have your Bibles, flip back to chapter 3 and look at verses 8 to 12. You see those verses? We, we were there, I don't know, it's a month or so ago. Peter is addressing the church community as a whole to a certain kind of behavior. All right, that's in chapter 3. Now, go back to our verses today. All right? Peter is addressing the church community as a whole to a certain kind of behavior. But what is everything that he's talking about in between? We've talked about it over and over and over again for several weeks now. Suffering, right? So, so, right? It's like a sandwich. You have church community, suffering, church community. Which means that faithful suffering happens within the context of an obedient church community. 
In fact, faithful serving, faithful suffering can only happen in an obedient church community. And I would venture that the greatest danger and threat to the church is not sufferings, is not persecutions, and it's not imprisonments, but the refusal to be an obedient community from within. In other words, the external threats might be formidable, and they might be dangerous, but the greatest danger lies within. Listen, the world loses hope not when it persecutes the church, but when the church refuses to look like Christ. That's when the world loses hope. Not when the church is in prison, but when the church doesn't look like Jesus anymore. And what 1 Peter shows us today is that an obedient church that looks like Christ is a humble church. A church steeped in humility toward one another. Alright? So let's read 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1-5. to So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to, going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. First, an obedient community consists of faithful shepherds. Faithful shepherds. Yes, this passage addresses the community as a whole. And that comes out like literally in the last verse. But it's, it's probably not lost on you that a great chunk of this passage is addressed to elders. Uh, and the majority of the sermon today will focus on pastors and elders. Uh, but I, I, I think Peter does this for a number of reasons. Okay, Why does he focus so much on elders here? The first is that elders have the charge of overseeing the community that it's obedient as it ought to be. Right? It, it, in other words, it starts with elders who are overseeing that the community is obedient. But secondly, and more important in my opinion, is that it is up to the elders to, to model this obedience. Right? If a pastor or elder is arrogant, the church is going to be arrogant. And if he's humble, well, the church is likely going to follow suit. And before I go further, I want to say I'm teaching two people here. First, I'm teaching myself because this is a model I fail to achieve, but I want to follow faithfully. But I'm also teaching you. Because whether it's me or somebody else, I want you to care deeply about what kind of shepherd you have. What kind of shepherd you pray for. And how you assess your shepherds. Not in strength of communication, not in strength of charisma, but in strength of character. So first, 
Peter is ex- exhorting, addressing elders here, okay? Uh, and, and I use the word elders because that's what Peter uses here, but it's the same thing as pastors. Same thing as saying shepherds, or in other places of Scripture you'll see overseers, even bishops, right? The biblical languages, they're all the same. So what is an elder? Robert Thune, he wrote a book on eldership. He defines elders as male leaders of the church who serve as pastors and pace setters who are grounded and rooted in the gospel. Right? So that's a good biblical definition. They're pastors, they care for the flock. Pace centers, examples to the flock that are rooted and grounded in the gospel. So good doctrine, biblical doctrine, gospel doctrine, okay? So Peter is addressing these male leaders as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker of the glory that is going to be revealed. Peter knows he has apostolic authority, right? He's already like kind of mentioned that several times. The whole reason he's writing the letter is because he's an apostle. He has the authority to write letters to churches commanding them what to do. But he knows he's a shepherd too and, and he gets he gets on their level. He's a he's a fellow elder. Okay, this is like uh Sam Walton. And he goes up to the the checkout lady and he says, Hey, I'm a fellow employee too, just like you, and I'm trying I'm striving to do the same things. I'm asking you to do. That's what Peter's doing here. And and so Peter's saying he's not only striving to do the same things, but he's also familiar with the sufferings that come with it. I'm not just trying to strive, but I'm also familiar. I'm I'm a a witness of the sufferings of Christ. I'm, I'm familiar with the sufferings that come with this, as well as the glory. So he gets on their level. Another interesting note is that Peter addresses elders among you. Listen, I think it is the standard New Testament practice and and my conviction that a church is healthiest when it has a plurality of elders. Right? A a plurality of of pastors. That doesn't mean every pastor has to be paid or on staff. In fact, What's often is the case is you'll have a few that are on staff and a few that are just lay volunteers. But I, I do believe the church is best served by multiple elders. Multiple dudes who can share pastoring and the feeding of the church. The first exhortation that Peter has is to shepherd the flock of God among you. Right? I exhort the elders among you. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. First thing to note is that this is not the elder's flock. It's God's flock. You, you don't belong to me. You belong to God. We belong to God. Any pastor that's unwilling to like let go of a congregation or his position doesn't understand that he is simply a steward that can be called away at any time. It's God's flock. But but Peter also says to, to shepherd the flock of God where? That is among you. As much as I might want to, I'm not called to shepherd other churches. 
I'm not called to tell other pastors how to pastor their church. Or crazy people on Facebook. How badly do I wish I could pastor some of the crazy people on Facebook? No, I'm called to pastor you. You non-crazy people in front of me. Part of that shepherding, Peter says, is exercising oversight. What does that mean? Shepherds are called to keep their fingers on the pulse of the flock. Okay, Watching that doctrine is, is deep and it's protected. No false doctrine or heresy comes in. Keeping an eye out for sin, right? Especially the sin that kind of affects and infiltrates the entire body. And making sure that the body is cared for and, and pastored and nourished. Right? That's what it means to exercise oversight. But this, this oversight is not a controlling oversight. It's, it's a humble oversight. What does Peter say? Peter says, uh, not under compulsion, but willingly. As God would have it. In other words, pastoring should not be miserable for the pastor. Right? The pastors shouldn't be George Bailey who feel forced into what they're doing. Right? I watched, I watched It's a Wonderful Life for the first time. And yeah, George Bailey has a wonderful life. But he's forced into everything throughout the entire course of the movie, isn't he? He gives up his college tuition, gives up his dream of following the world. Pastors should not be forced to do pastoring. They should be willing and, and joyful. Peter says, not for shameful gain, but but eagerly. If you've been in our Bible study in 1 Corinthians, we've talked recently about how gospel ministers have every right to expect compensation for the work. Right? It's good to take care of your pastor. I'm not, hint, I'm not hinting at anything. We had a good, deep discussion in that Bible study. All right? I'm not hinting at anything. But yes, pastors should be supported well. But he has no place doing it for the compensation. It shouldn't be for self-promotion or, or self-glory. Peter uh, continues, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. It is wildly unfortunate that we have too many examples of this domineering, pastoring. And unfortunately, pastoring can be a lucrative position who want control and power. I mean, we have too many recent examples of, of pastors who abuse their power and even their flock. I mean, I've talked about Mark Driscoll before. Some of you might be familiar with Bill Hybels, uh, maybe James McDonald, even Carl Lentz. And, and honestly, there are still pastors out there who write books and have influence who, whose arrogance we need to watch out for. No, pastors are not called to domineer, but, but to serve. Tom Schreiner, he, he rightly noted that pastors are to use their authority to serve, and in that way, they imitate the example of Jesus Himself. Jesus didn't say, I have authority, therefore I'm going to control you and domineer you. He used His authority to, to serve. 
finally, Peter ends with an encouragement there in verse 4. And when the chief shepherd, shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. All pastors are under shepherds. We have one true shepherd, the true faithful and humble pastor, Jesus. Jesus is our pastor. Humble pastors know that they are not the heroes. Humble pastors point to Jesus as the hero. And it is in following Him in humility that pastors will, see, will receive great reward and great joy. A humble community consists of humble shepherds. And secondly, an obedient community consists of humble youth. It's there in verse 5. Peter says in verse 5, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Right? Peter has been exhorting these elders to humility, specifically though in the realm of leadership. Right? Even though elders are called to serve, they're still leaders. If then elders are called to be leaders, then those under their care must be willing to follow their leadership. So you not only need humble leadership, but humble submission to that leadership. But, but why does Peter address those who are younger? He's, he's talking about those who are like physically, age-wise, younger. It's not because those who are younger have stupid ideas. It's not because those who are younger don't know what they're talking about. And it's not that they don't have anything to contribute. Right? Churches have famously relegated the youth to their own little huddle when youth have a remarkable ability to serve. They can serve in many ways. So, you know, why should we wait to put people in positions of service until they're adults? <laughs> no, Peter addresses those who are younger because those who are younger are just more prone to rebellious attitudes. It, am I honest? I can't be the only one in this room that thought when I was younger, I'm not going to be like that when I'm older, and I turn out exactly like that. I cannot be the only one in this room that had that attitude. We, we just have this like really incredible tendency to always think we know better when we're younger. Don't we? When I was in college, I was a leader in our uh, college ministry at a time when our church was looking for a new a new leader. And and what's really interesting and really funny as I look back on that time is that our college ministry was great. God grew me in many ways, but I, I just saw our little college ministry as like better than the rest of the church. That we just did things better. We sang better music, sang better songs, had better Bible studies, better teaching. We just did things better. And, and really, we weren't that connected to the church as a whole. We, we gathered at the church. We, we did things at the church. We weren't really connected, you know. So when they finally called a new pastor, I was not a fan when he decided that the way we were doing it needed to change. And the problem wasn't with this new pastor. The problem was that in my heart, I wasn't submitting to his leadership as I was called to. 
this is where it gets really hard. Even for me in my past, and even now. Because it has nothing to do with the pastor's preaching style. It has nothing to do with his leadership style, or even his personality. You are called to submit to his leadership. And for you, that takes a lot of humility. And again, right, we talked about submission, you know, months ago, especially in regards to submitting to, like, uh, the state and stuff. It's not just any kind of pastoring that you submit to. You submit to the kind of biblical pastoring that we've already seen. The humble, obedient, faithful pastoring that glorifies Jesus. That's what we submit to. You don't submit to abuse. You don't submit to bullying or to extorting. Leaders who contradict God's holiness or who subvert the gospel are not leaders we follow. (laughs) But leaders who exemplify this character, honor God's holiness, and are faithful to the gospels are leaders we submit to and we follow. And, And listen, we don't complain and we don't grumble. Like the Israelites, right? They complain and grumbled all the time. We humble ourselves. We pray for grace. Pray for our pastors and pray for God's will, not ours. Doesn't mean you don't ever disagree. I know you guys disagree with me every week probably, but it means you're faithfully following and we're learning and growing together. leads to our final point. An obedient community consists of a humble people. Peter concludes, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. So humility doesn't just look like submission to elders. That is part of humility. But humility looks like service to one another. Humility looks like Giving generously to the needs of the church. That doesn't always mean like money or finances, but it does mean giving of your time and your energy and your ability. It means doing doing so without an expected ROI. Return on investment, right? You when you humbly give to the church, you do so not expecting that the church owes you. Humility looks like remembering those that we sometimes neglect. Look, we're not perfect. We neglect people in our midst all the time. But humility looks like remembering those. So so a, a, a widow, right? Who grieves in silence. The, the elderly who can't get out of their homes. Even the children just outside playing, right? The disabled and the struggling. It, it means remembering them and, and, and caring for them and, and welcoming them and Helping them to see that they are a part of this body together. Humility looks like giving one another favor. Have you ever thought of humility that way? Giving somebody else favor? So when there are disagreements among us or among you and a brother or sister, that the single controlling factor is that you are siblings in Christ. And that no disagreement should drive a wedge between you. When a brother or sister offends 
seriously offends or sins against you and asks for forgiveness, showing favor, right? Looks like forgiving and forgiving freely. How many times must I forgive my brother? Seven? Seventy times seven. And, and it means assigning pure motives, right, to one another and, 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 and giving the benefit of the doubt. If one of you says something crazy, I'm going to imagine you just, I'm not going to think you're crazy. You know, you just said something crazy, okay? You're not always crazy. Humility looks like wanting people to be more in the in, image of Jesus, more than the image of yourself. We should always be asking ourselves if the agenda we want to advance is our own or if it's truly the Lord's. Because we get those mixed up all the time. More than that, we should... Here's what's even more difficult, is we should always be willing to lay down our agenda. As important as we think it is, if it means it's going to cause disruption and dysfunction among the body. Why? Because God gives, God, I'm sorry, opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. What a terrifying and wonderful promise all at the same time. It's terrifying because God opposes the proud. He's talking about Christians here. Doesn't mean he's opposing you salvifically, but he's opposing you in other ways. It, it's horrifying to think that you could be so convinced of your own righteous cause, all the while that unaware that God opposes you. That's terrifying, and and, and it's horrifying because of how easily we slip into pride. All the time. You are always slipping into pride and always need to examine yourself and your motives. So it's, it's terrifying, but it's also it's wonderful. Because God gives grace. God gives grace. And He gives grace to the proud guy, proud woman, who sees her pride and confesses and repents of it. He gives grace when we freely admit our wrongs and when we freely admit our pride. He gives grace when we forgive, when we ask for forgiveness. He gives grace when we humble ourselves and, and relinquish our self-righteousness. It doesn't take anything on our part but confessing we don't have anything on our part. <laughs> it is only by God's grace that we could bring anything of goodness to the table. Otherwise, we bring nothing but sin and our own pride and our own mess. So an obedient community consists of humble shepherds, humble youth, and humble people. The greatest danger, I'm convinced, is not suffering. It's not persecution. And it isn't an anti-Christian society. It's an anti-humble community. 
A community marked not by features of humility, but by features of arrogance or smugness or pride. This is ironic. This, this whole thing is ironic because so often suffering can, can lead us to attitudes of victimization, right? Where we make much of ourselves and our own plight, right? Why me? Or, or it's not my fault. We end up blaming circumstances or other people. We end up making it all about us when in reality, our identity as sufferers should not lead to victimization, but humiliation. When our hearts are turned away from ourselves and toward one another. When we say, this isn't about me, but the kingdom God has called us together to. This will happen so long as Jesus remains our example. Let us pray and strive to make Jesus our example. The King who advanced His kingdom through humility through weakness, cross-carrying, and self-dying. That's the Jesus we want to follow. That's the Jesus that's our example. This will happen as long as Jesus is our source. Right? This level of humility is only possible through the grace and Spirit of Christ. And so the object of our faith is the source of our humility. So let us not just strive to make Jesus our example. Let, let's cry out to Him as our source. Like, Jesus, You are where the power of my obedience happens in You. There's power into looking into Jesus, unto Jesus, right? You're not just looking at, at the, the man upstairs. You're looking at Jesus, the source of all power and all grace and all sanctification and all humility. There's power in looking unto Jesus by faith. So this is possible if Jesus is our source. And this is possible so long as Jesus is our solution. Listen, Jesus is the solution for failed pastors. For me. He is the solution for failed youth who are arrogant. And He is the solution for failed people who bite and devour one another. He is a continual source of grace for those who stumble their way through obedience and stumble their way to humility. He is the chief shepherd for the chief of sinners of whom I and you are the foremost. Let's go to Jesus our shepherd in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank You that You are our great Shepherd. You lead and guide us when we drag our feet, when we fall and when we stumble. Even when we try to run backwards sometimes, Lord, You still lead and guide us. And all of us in this room are desperate for You. Because in our hearts, Lord, we're proud and self-righteous and we cling to ourselves and our own kingdoms. We need You, Lord, to help us follow You in humility, to help us look unto You for humility and, Lord, to rest in You when we have failed in our humility. 
But Lord Jesus, may, may our hope be in You. And not in safety, not in everything going right, but Lord, that we might be a humble, obedient community. That through all of life's changes and societal upheavals and disasters, the one constant would be we follow Jesus, our humble chief shepherd. And that we would walk in humility toward one another. Build up your church, Lord, as we submit our wills to you. In your name we pray. Amen.